0: Welcome back. It's hard to believe that we're in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians already, but we are. And today's topic can be a doozy. This chapter of scripture and its cousin, Romans 14, open up a can of worms about our Christ-bought freedoms on peripheral matters of Christian liberty. As you know, Rose, I like definitive decisions on most things. I can make Definitive decisions on almost everything. Yes, you can. You're like that too. We both have no trouble making definitive decisions and we both like definitive decisions. But when it comes to peripheral do's and don'ts in the Christian life, there is a ton of gray area. Yeah, there really is. Today, we're going to grapple with the question Am I commanded to let a weaker brother or sister in Christ hijack my freedoms? In these
1: peripheral matters, because kind of sounds like Paul says that. It does. Chris, I think most people prefer definitive answers. I think gray areas and peripheral stuff is tough for a lot of people. Christians want to know, can I get a tattoo? Is it okay to dance? Can I smoke pot if it's legal in my state? The list is endless. We see it all the time. They just want answers. But the answers aren't so easy. Mm Mm-mm. Ask a Presbyterian if you can smoke a cigar and have a shot of whiskey and their answer would be thankfully a resounding yes, but ask an independent Baptist church in your area and the answer would be a resounding
0: no, absolutely
1: not. And depending on the strain of the independent Baptist, they may even tell you to go and put a skirt or dress on Chris because women shouldn't be wearing pants. I know that's true because there's one in this area. Every form of other religions have rules and disciplines that presuppose if followed, then you'll gain and you'll maintain an end goal, whether that's reaching nirvana or appeasing some fake deity. Basically, follow the rules and you're good to go. Many people wrongly lump Christianity into that category. We talked about this in the lie of religion. Yeah. They think that the essence of Christianity is following the right rules, even rules that are extra biblical, but Christianity is not based on legalism. And if you think it is, you've never read scripture, right? As Christians, we've been set free from the Mosaic law as the way of salvation. We don't have to keep the rules anymore. Nobody ever could. That was never the point. That was the point of having the rules. That's right, to show that we couldn't have kept them. Instead, it's based on Jesus's merit alone that we have peace with God. For someone who is truly a believer, that will not change regardless of what they do or what they don't do, whether they wear a dress or pants, whether they have a shot of whiskey or not. They're not gonna lose their salvation if they're truly saved. They can't, yes. We've also been
0: set free from sin and Satan's dominion in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have new desires and we have the ability to live for righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. We still have the old man, meaning our old sinful self that we have to deal with. We're never going to get a completely 100% correct
1: in this life. But Christians are definitely changed. Without a doubt. And Christians are free from the regulations that others add to scripture in the matters of faith and worship, like wearing a skirt or wearing pants or not being allowed to have alcohol. First Timothy four warns of demons who creep in in the form of legalism and in the form of superstitions and false religions that teach that matter and physical pleasures are intrinsically evil. There's a lot of churches today that still preach
0: this. Yeah, and it's right there. It's right there in scripture that says demons will teach
1: that. Yeah, the text says that people will depart from Christianity and devote themselves to the teaching of demons who forbid marriage. Think of the episode last week we talked about this. And require abstaining from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Forbidding this stuff is false teaching. And as 1 Timothy 4, 4-5 says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's the end of the scripture.
0: Yeah, Rose, we should not take these freedoms lightly. In several places in scripture, the apostle Paul defends these freedoms, like Galatians 5.1, which says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But twice, there seems to be a caveat to standing firm in our freedom. Twice, Paul seems to say that we need to voluntarily give up or restrict our freedom for the sake of someone who has a lesser understanding of the Bible and those freedoms that are afforded to us.
1: Yeah, we definitely need to flesh it out. In 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, Paul addresses the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. That's the peripheral issue he deals with, but it realms much further into application for us. Corinth was a bustling port city, as we've said often. A lot of religious temples, a lot of paganism, the temple of Apollo, the temple of Hermes, Octavia's temple, and so on. It's thought that at one time there could have been a dozen temples for worshiping false gods. Just like God's priests in the Old Testament, a large part of a pagan priest's job was being a butcher and a cook. And what that means is sacrificing and cutting the animal up and cooking it. Parts of the animal they butchered would be used as an offering to the pagan deity during the worship feast. So what did they do with the rest of the sacrificed animal?
0: Well, you could also buy some of that sacrificed meat in the marketplace to cook in your own home. Sacrificed meat wasn't the only meat available to the people in Corinth, but it was likely the most convenient meat to get in the city. The leftover meat sacrificed to idols was also sold in restaurant-style dining halls that were attached to the temples, and they've actually found evidence of these halls during excavations. These dining halls weren't just open to the worshipers of whatever deity it was. Anyone could come there and eat. You could get a really good meal at a pagan temple, and it was like going to a really good restaurant. So you would be at this temple in this restaurant-style setting, having a meal, and you would be doing that, at least some of them would, without actually being in a worship setting, without actually worshiping. Makes me think of the
1: Brazilian steakhouses where they just keep bringing you plates of meat. (laughs) That's what it sounds like to me too every time I read it. I don't know why. Some of the Corinthians had enough knowledge, good enough theology, to understand that an idol has no real existence. They understood that there's only one God and that everything exists for that one God. They recognized that eating meat sacrificed to idols is a freedom they have in Christ because idols are fake. So there is no idols. Eating it doesn't affect your salvation. So for these reasons, in chapter 10, Paul gives the practical advice that when buying food in a public market or eating at someone's home, you don't have to ask about the meat's origins. Now, there is the caveat that for the sake of unbelievers, probably to show a distinction between you and them, don't eat it if you find out it's been sacrificed to an idol. This might be the first don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. But if they don't tell you, you don't have to ask. Don't ask, don't tell. Right. Because
0: actually an idol is nothing and it means nothing. And like you said, some of these Corinthians had correct theology and knowledge that eating sacrificed meat would not have an effect on their salvation. But some of the Corinthians were weaker in their knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 7-13 says, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak.
1: lest I make my brother stumble." So some of these Corinthians were still babies, needing milk, as it says, about theological issues. Paul talks about them being immature. They hadn't delved into the meat of solid theology that led to freedom, no pun intended. Is Paul saying that if we have a deeper theological understanding of our freedoms in Christ, that we have to give up our Christian freedom and kowtow to every weak brother or sister we encounter in all situations, or else we're sinning? Well, Chris, at first read, it does sound like he might be saying that. At first read, it really, really does. But there are two
0: sides to this coin. One is being willing at the proper times to give up your rights to your Christian freedoms for the sake of the weaker sibling. For these peripheral issues, there are not cut and dry answers, as we said. But we can't and we won't neglect the flip side of this coin in this episode. And that flip side is the judgmental attitudes that often come from weaker brothers wrongly deeming something unbiblical when in fact it's not. So Rose, let's get started diving into this. And we'll start first by tackling the issue with a stronger brother's responsibility
1: to give up his rights for a weaker brother or sister. Paul starts this whole section off saying, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Because we know from prior chapters that at least part of the Corinthian church had a major sinful pride issue they were dealing with. And that could have been why they were acting haughty about having superior knowledge that allowed them to eat the meat in pagan temples, not considering how it affected the weaker members of the body. Some of the weaker siblings in the church were probably recent converts. Suppose some of these weaker members of the Corinthian church had been steeped in false worship before coming to Christ. It's likely they'd grown up their whole lives worshiping multiple idols. If you weren't raised a Jew and you were a Gentile, you were likely a polytheist worshiping a lot of gods. Old habits die hard ingrained beliefs are hard to shake. It's really easy to see why the weaker believers couldn't disassociate eating in the temple with practicing idolatry. And Chris, I think you could make this argument today. If somebody comes out of the word of faith movement or something, and they've they've actually become a Christian now, and they're a new Christian, and they get to a church where the people do raise their hand, where there is you know, more, the music is more upbeat and full band. You can see where they might think, oh no, because it brings back memories of the word of faith movement. There's nothing sinful about that kind of worship at all. But you can see when someone is weaker and they're a new Christian, that things that wouldn't bother most of us will bother them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For this instance, eating was part of worship. Some of the people that were sitting there in that same setting weren't actually worshiping the idol. These little G gods were a huge part, like you said, of everyday culture. You worshiped them so that you could have a good life. You truly believed that your worship of them was what made you prosperous or what made you fertile. Paganism likely still had a big hold on some of these Christians in the city. So a weaker brother or sister would see their fellow church member eating alongside the pagans. And sometimes they would follow along too, even if they had some personal reservations about it, even if they felt it in their gut that it was wrong. Some of them would still do it. And according to verse 7, that is defiling to them. And in verse 11, it actually says that the weaker brothers or sisters are destroyed. So Rose, you want to take a crack
1: at explaining that? sure i'll take a crack at it in other words although the stronger brothers feel free from conviction eating the meat these precious weaker believers that christ died for are convinced in their hearts that they're actively participating in something that's wrong just like the example we said with someone coming out of word of faith we know from paul's words in verse 8 where he says food will not commend us to god We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's the end of his verse. So God doesn't care because God knows it's worthless. And if we're a strong Christian and we know our theology, we know it doesn't matter. So eating the meat in and of itself is not sinful. It's not sinful for the stronger or the weaker brother or sister. But the weaker brother or sister is actually sinning because they're eating the meat thinking it's a sin. So they're sinning in this scenario because they think it's a sin, yet they're eating it anyway. So it's basically rebellion for them. They're guilty of the sin of rebellion, whereas the stronger brother and sister doesn't think it's a sin. I should say they know it's not a sin from scripture. It's not about what you think. So it's not a sin for them. But if the weaker brother and sister is convinced it's a sin, yet they do it, that's rebellion. And that is a sin. Right. And this is reiterated in Romans
0: 14, 14, where Paul's talking about the food that's clean and unclean. And this is what he says. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. And then jumping down to verses 20 to 23, Paul follows with these words. Do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then Paul also says in that same Romans passage, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So if they're doing it and they think it's wrong, even though it's not wrong, by doing it,
1: they're actively rebelling against God. Chris, notice both the Romans and Corinthians passage that you read are dealing with about what to eat and what not to eat. And Romans 14 also talks about days of worship. These passages are not teaching that you can make up your own moral law as long as you firmly convince in your own mind that they're right. Paul is talking about the things that are non-essential in the Christian life. He's talking about things that aren't explicitly spelled out in scripture. These are gray areas that were causing division between the Jew and Gentile believers. The gist of Paul's words in these two passages is that love and unity were being ditched over the sake of Christian non-essentials. Exactly.
0: The issues themselves might be small, but causing a brother or sister in Christ to stumble or fall into sin, the Greek word is scandalon is to be avoided. In Matthew 18, 6, Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And little ones in that passage, he's talking about disciples, not children. And that's the same thing that we see in Romans 14, 21, which says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine, or to do anything else that will cause your
1: brother to fall. Right. Paul is saying, use good judgment. You know, if something is going to cause your weaker brother or sister to, to stumble, think about it before you do it. Just use good judgment. And there are gray areas and there's no definitive answers like we started off saying, but just use good judgment. However, that does not mean that the weaker brother or sister gets the last word. We have to look at the whole of scripture in this situation, just like with anything else. There's more going on here. Yes, instead of practicing love for the sake of unity, the stronger siblings in the Corinthian church were looking down on the weaker ones. And the weaker ones were following along, which, as we said, for them could have been a sinful rebellion. But some weaker believers were judging and condemning the stronger, more knowledgeable brothers and sisters over peripheral issues because they weren't mature enough to understand the liberties they've been given by Christ. These weaker siblings weren't showing love for the sake of unity either. The weaker brothers were wreaking havoc on the church too. And Chris, this would be just like if someone who came out of the word of faith movement came to church with me. And when I worship and when I'm singing, I do lift my hand. If they say, well, can you not do that? Well, that would be the weaker brother wreaking havoc and imposing on my rights as a stronger believer. So again, gray area. Gray area, but it can wreak havoc, especially when it involves whole churches,
0: which we're going to get to. Let me quote Owen Strahan in a tweet from 2021. And this was his tweet. The weaker brother principle of Romans 14 does not mean you must accommodate the conscience of your weaker brother. It means that you are free to do so, may choose to do so from love, but are in no way compelled to do so. Otherwise, we would have a functional rule of weakness. And that's the end of his tweet. It is great quote. He got some pushback on that tweet, but I think he's making a great point here. Kowtowing to the weaker brother in all their weaknesses can lead to problems, big problems.
1: It can lead to a very legalistic church. Here again, follow things to their logical conclusion. There has to be give and take. Pastor Strahan is right. Paul does make a case for being willing to give up our rights to our Christian liberties, but he also makes it very clear that tyranny of the weak cannot rule in the church. Can you imagine the church if it did? No. Going further in that Romans passage to verses 16 and 19, it says, Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. A church cannot be properly
0: run by immature Christians. We know that. The Bible tells us- There's 1- churches that are, and we see what the result of that is. We do. But first, Timothy 3.6 says an elder should not be a recent convert. And Titus 1.9 says an elder must hold firmly to the word of God and be able to give sound instruction in it. Well, Rose, we know that, that can't be done by someone who doesn't know their Bible. I'm going to quote another pastor. This is Pastor Joel Weben of Right Response Ministries. And he posed this question on his podcast. Should the church welcome the weaker brother as their pastor? If the Apostle Paul labels the one whose conscience is wrongfully bound by man-made traditions as objectively weaker, should this individual be in a position of authority over
1: those who are objectively stronger? And his answer was, clearly, Paul's point has to do with faith. Therefore, the weaker brother is not merely weaker in some kind of abstract way, rather in accordance with scripture. The weaker brother possesses less faith than his other brothers and sisters in Christ. Such a man should be graciously welcomed into the church, but is there not a serious problem when the church is led by those with the least amount of faith. In these cases, by virtue of both the individual's person and position, the church becomes a context for mass tyranny. Man-made traditions become church-wide requirements that everyone is commanded to follow, despite Christ having purchased freedom from such traditions by the costly price of his own blood. Good quote. Sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? It does. You know, He doesn't sound like the Pharisees. The Weaker Brothers sound like the Pharisees. Yeah, that's what I mean.
0: Pastor Webb is saying that in light of what happened during COVID when cries were heard all over the world that Christians weren't being loving and they weren't being kind if they didn't mask up and vaccinate. And he makes a great point. He says, wearing a mask is not a law of God. And yet, many of our puny faith pastors have wrongfully bound the consciences of all their congregants in this regard. The same can be said of pastors requiring vaccines for worship or segregating the people of God according to vaccination status. Possessing a conscience that's so poorly shaped is not a disqualification for salvation. Membership in Christ's church is what he means. But should it be a disqualification for eldership? Would not the apostle Paul expect the office of elder to be filled by stronger brothers? The past couple of years have appeared to prove that a vast number of evangelical churches are being led by the weakest among us, according to clear biblical standards. And that's the end of the rest of his quote.
1: Yeah, he's absolutely right. I even heard a pastor say getting vaccine is part of the gospel. It's not.
0: Of course just it's like not paying
1: reparations is not no. just like, and yeah,
0: it's hijacking Social the gospel. Is not. No, right. it's hijacking the gospel again.
1: That's right. Not only shouldn't church elders be the weaker brothers, the church elders can't let the weaker brothers commandeer what happens at the church. And for good reason, one of which is that many times at the heart of legalism is the belief that we can earn or keep God's favor by what we do or don't do. And that's totally opposite of the gospel. But think about it, Chris. Of course, the weaker brothers and sisters are legalistic because they're weaker. They don't know the word of God. So it's a lot easier for them to keep rules than it is to study and become biblically literate. Absolutely. A Christian is already justified by Christ's righteousness. Nothing we can do can make his righteousness any better. Of course not, because it's already perfect. And that's what gives you so
0: much joy. Absolutely. Holding to legalistic strict rules seems like, from a human perspective, it seems like that would be the stronger position. But it's the exact opposite. I mean, Paul calls these legalistic Christians weaker brothers. Often weaker siblings don't even realize that. And sometimes pridefully, they'll stay in their unlearned milk diet and as some have called dysfunctional state by refusing to learn more. Should we really curtail our teaching and our ministries and our plans in order to cater to the positions of the most dysfunctional members of our family?
1: We that don't do you... that in our regular families.
0: No, because At it doesn't make we shouldn't. It doesn't. Yeah, but you, we don't because it won't make a bit of sense to do that. And we see this all the time is someone excluding certain instruments from your worship. Fighting about which music you can and can't use or which band you can use it from, even though somebody good has probably covered it already. Forbidding your youth group to have a dance party. This is a serious thing I've heard of in two different churches. Somebody's causing a rumpus over holding potluck dinners because nobody's licensed to do food safety handling.
1: (laughs) These are gray areas. Yes, they are. And just want to clarify... If you're complaining that the music lyrics are theologically unsound or biblically wrong, that's completely different than the style of music. Absolutely. I was pretty much talking more about bands that have those
0: kind of lyrics, and then they have some songs which the lyrics are fine. I could argue the heck out of either side. Yeah. But I just want to
1: make clear. Yeah,
0: I'm glad you did that. Unbiblical lyrics is not a peripheral issue. Oh, heck no. It is not a peripheral issue at all. And I'm sorry if anybody thought I was saying that. But thank you, Rose, for
1: clarifying (laughs) that. I wasn't talking about that. Well, let's talk about a few personal examples. And remember that the overarching theme of these passages is unity within the body by treating our brothers and sisters with love. We can start with the familiar legalistic fundamentalist line. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with boys that do. That was popular a few decades ago, and if you have never heard it before, you're probably a lot younger than us. But Chris, does the Bible prohibit smoking, drinking, chewing, or running with boys that do? (laughs) No, it doesn't.
0: But it was a popular line, especially like in Baptist churches. We're told not to get drunk along with envying, carousing, and and things like these, is what Galatians 5.21 says. If you're a fundamentalist and you're
1: saying no drinking whatsoever, you need to go back to scripture. Right. And if it's a personal choice, that's fine. Yeah. You can't be putting your views on other people when it's not biblical. Right. People ask on social media about smoking or vaping. Now, I, I think both are terrible for your health. I don't think anybody should be doing either. But the legalist answer is that it's sin because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. and Our bodies are that. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Paul said that clearly, but the Bible doesn't speak to smoking and vaping. It does speak specifically of gluttony though. And it does say that's a sin. And it's funny because gluttony is much more acceptable in Christian circles. In fact, I went to a Baptist church for a long time. If there was any reason it was it, any reason to get together, there was food involved. And look, I'm all for that. But yeah, we kind of forget that the Bible specifically says gluttony is a sin. It does not say anything about smoking or vaping or that drinking is a sin. Yet Christians will focus on that. Yeah. And if your body's a temple, you know,
0: yeah. you know, that's a pretty hypocritical stance to take. There are some more peripheral issues that we see a lot on social media. piercing, tattoos.
1: Gambling, dancing, using the King James Version exclusively. We did an episode on Christians owning guns for self-defense. That issue divides Christians unnecessarily. Entertainment's another biggie. Superhero movies, are they okay or not? Secular music, is that a no-no or is it okay? Like you said, Chris, gambling. Anything that involves the sci-fi stuff or has witches in it or magicians, Can you play certain video games if you're a Christian? Should you let your kids watch Disney? Now, there are good reasons you can argue for or against any of those things. But biblically speaking, they're all gray areas. They are gray areas. And parts of each of those things
0: might be right. All of some of those things may be okay. It just really depends. A lot of it depends on you and if you're overdoing it or not. Or what problems it's causing you. But like you said, gray areas, the gray list is extensive. Here's one, Rose. Let's talk modesty. I absolutely abhor talking about this (laughs) subject, but I'm going to bring it up. I hate this subject because it's subjective. Like it or not, it is subjective. If you showed your ankles or your wrists 100 years ago, that would be a no-no. There are cultural norms that make people just not even notice certain things anymore. The fact that one person looks provocative in some outfit and the next person looks not provocative at all in it. All of those things are subjective. The Bible doesn't say that your skirt has to be at least as long as your fingertips. And it doesn't say that it has to go all the way down past your knees or to your ankles. There are no absolutes of any of that. What the Bible does say about modesty has more to do with promoting holiness and not drawing attention to yourself. However, when you get up and get dressed in the morning, you need to consider your sister with a weaker conscience. And if she's going to follow in your footsteps and it goes against her conscience, then according to Paul's words, you've caused her to
1: sin. And that's not the only problem. No, it's not. And if you're thinking, as I've seen many Christian modesty debates go recently, that, well, it's totally up to the man to control his lust, regardless of what I'm wearing. Well, then 1 Corinthians 8 should make you rethink that stance. Because if you're dressing in a way that's bringing attention to yourself, not in a good way, not just that you look attractive, but that you are showing cleavage or your skirt is way too short and you're causing men to look at you lustfully, you're causing your brother to stumble. Yeah, and you're right, Rose. I have seen that in modesty
0: debates as a defense for women to do whatever they want.
1: Yeah, we're called to be holy. 1 Peter two sixteen says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Galatians five thirteen, Paul says that we're called to freedom but we're not to turn it into an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, we're to serve one another through love. So you're free, but you're not free to do whatever you want and make other people stumble. You are
0: not. And as we've already alluded to, or probably have said, these gray areas, some of them are full of tension. We're not given specifics for every single thing in life. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24, Paul writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul starts here with an argument from the position of ultimate freedom, but then he works backwards. He doesn't start backwards and work forwards, but he does work backwards. You have to take these things into consideration. The second London Baptist confession of 1689 says in chapter 21, God alone is Lord of the conscience and he's left it free from human doctrines and commands that are are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of the liberty of conscience. Requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. We can't have our conscience bound by the weaker brother, but we have to take this stuff into consideration.
1: Yeah. Wisdom. Everything's about wisdom. Mm -hmm. Legalism forbids what God allows, while licentiousness allows what God forbids. Both are dangerous. Christ didn't set us free so that we can sin as much as we want, knowing that we're forgiven. That's antinomianism and that's heresy. Jesus hates antinomianism and those who practice it. We see that in Revelation 2, 6. But like we already said, in its most basic sense, legalism is rooted in the belief that we can earn or keep God's favor by what we do or don't do. And it's kind of ironic because, We do the opposite. We don't get God's favor. And that's not the gospel. That's religion. And to answer the questions that we've been asking, the theme of the chapter, what does it mean to be wise and what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, there are plenty of legalistic, fundamental Christians who seem spiritual. The question is, are they practicing religion or are they trusting and believing in the gospel? And what does it mean to be wise? In
0: light of the topic of unity within the church, we should be exercising our Christian liberties while keeping watch that we're not causing a brother or sister to stumble in any way. If that's going to happen, we may be called to give up our rights. Paul uses himself as an example for doing that all the way through the letter of Corinthians. Over and over again, he lays out the rights that he has given up and some of the other pastors are given up. And he's ultimately
1: pointing us to Christ who gave up all of his rights. Amen to that. We'll end by quoting some of our favorites. First, Ligonier Ministries. They say, you do not need to exercise your liberty in order to enjoy it. Indeed, Paul elsewhere asks some very penetrating questions of those who insist on exercising their liberty, whatever the circumstances. Does this really build up others? Is this really liberating you or has it actually begun to enslave you? The subtle truth is that the Christian who has to exercise his or her liberty is in bondage to the very thing he or she insists on doing. Says Paul, if the kingdom consists for you in food, drink, and the like, you've missed the point of the gospel and the freedom of the spirit. And that's the end of the quote. That's absolutely right. What you think is a freedom and you insist on doing becomes an idol. Absolutely. I love that
0: quote. He makes a very, they make a very, very good point. Yes. And I'm going to quote John Calvin, another one of our favorites. We restrain the exercise of our freedom for the sake of weak believers, but not when we are faced with Pharisees who demand that we conform to what is unscriptural. Where the gospel is at stake, liberty needs to be exercised. Where the stability of a weak Christian is at stake,
1: we need to restrain it. That's another great quote. Yep. The overarching principle above all of this is that Jesus Christ gave up his rights for us while we were still sinners. We were his enemies, yet he loved us enough to do that. Talk about a picture of the stronger brother and weak brother or sister. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Fighting about our liberties can wreak havoc on the church. It shows the outside world that we are no different than them. I'm going to quote our very favorite Jesus. He says, "A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another." And he says that in John thirteen thirty four to thirty five. Be guided by love for other believers and glorifying God, which includes freely enjoying all that he's given us to enjoy.
0: And that's where we're going to end today. Have a blessed day, everybody.